unrelated things. Greetings and welcome to episode number eight of Unrelated Things. Hopefully episode number eight will get me back on track. However, I am going through some big changes where I work. I'm actually taking a new job and relocating shortly. Just fair warning that there may be a couple more bumps in the road before I get back on my regular track of one episode per week. Um, so just be aware, maybe there may be some episodes that are a little bit shorter, or there may be a week that gets missed as I transition from one role to another and one location to another. Thanks to all the first-time listeners out there for tuning in to episode number eight. Go back and check out the earlier episodes if you have a chance and if you enjoy this episode. And thank you so much to any repeat listeners out there for coming back for more episodes of Unrelated Things. Here is my quote of the week. While the income of a minority is increasing exponentially, that of the majority is crumbling. And you will find out later in the episode who said that. You can make a donation or find out more about Unrelated Things at unrelatedthings.net. You can provide feedback at unrelatedthings at gmail.com. And you can follow Unrelated Things on Twitter or on Facebook. On to the hesitation and hypothecation. And my top pick is actually a sign that I saw a photograph of. I think I saw this through Reddit. Uh, I follow Reddit in um, Flipboard and check out the, the top items on Reddit that way and find, find items from Reddit, usually by that method. So this was a picture of a sign in a store um, that I saw. And it really spoke loudly to me. I think all of us as consumers um, should respect the particular sign that this uh, store owner posted. And I work in retail, and I work with customers every single day. And this spoke pretty loudly to me. So here is how the sign reads. You are the most important visitor on our premises. You are not dependent on us. We are dependent on you. You are not an interruption to our work. You are the purpose of it. You are not an outsider to our business. You are part of it. We are not doing you a favor by serving you. You are doing us a favor by giving the opportunity to do so. Thank you. Signed, Ali. So that really spoke loudly to me as a someone on both sides of the uh, retail consumer fence, um, being at work or being a shopper. And I think it should be the attitude of every store owner and by extension, every employee they choose to employ should be listening to that and following that and understanding that it is the customers of the establishment that allow it to exist and allow it to thrive. Roll up your trousers. It's time to wade into the news. So we're just coming out of Memorial Day weekend, which means for many, many people across the country, across the United States, uh, a three-day weekend, a holiday, picnics, cookouts, the whole nine yards. Uh, our weather here in Vermont, where I live, was quite unusual for this time of year. It was down here. I mean, I'm in the valley here in southern Vermont, and it was cold and rainy all Saturday and Sunday of the three-day weekend. Not so when you get to a little bit higher elevations. It was certainly cold, but there wasn't very much rain because there was quite a bit of snow falling. The end of May 
here in southern Vermont and in parts of upstate New York. And here's a little story from the Atlantic Wire about our recent weather. It's a snowy Memorial Day weekend for parts of the U.S. On the aptly named Whiteface Mountain in upstate New York, there are at least 34 inches of snow on the ground. According to Weather Underground, a couple of other mountain peaks in Vermont reached 18 inches of snow, while some towns with higher elevations clocked in at about 7 inches of snowfall this weekend. The, the closest large ski mountain to me is Stratton Mountain, and I heard one story of a intrepid snowboarder who grabbed his board and hiked up the mountain, and at the top of the mountain, or at least at the height that he he got to up on the mountain, there was about 14 inches of snow. He boarded down, and when he got down to the bottom, he, he definitely realized he was not up for another hike back up to the top. But that was the kind of snowy weather, some of the upper elevations here. To figure out how unusual the snowfall this weekend was, weather underground had to go back to 1816. Quote, most famous of all cold and snowy late season events would have to be the infamous 1816 year without a summer and the snowfall in June that occurred in the eastern U.S. and Canada. Between June 6th and June 8th, accumulating snow was observed as far south as the Catskills in New York, where one inch was reported, and highlands of central and northwest Pennsylvania. Snowflakes were seen at sea level as far south as 10 miles north of Tidewater, on the Hudson River, just above New York City. So it has been quite a long time since there's been some measurable and, in fact, deep snowfalls that have occurred this late in the season and this close to summer. So that is the weather we experienced last weekend. And tomorrow we're supposed to be at 80 degrees. We may get up to 90 degrees by the end of the week. So some some huge shifts in our weather here in New England. This happened. Two wannabe bad dudes recently walked into a Stockton, California Burger King, drew their guns, and demanded cash. One employee was able to slip out the back of the eatery and into the parking lot, where the robber's car was idling. Seeing an opportunity to throw a hitch in the suspect's plans, he got into their car and drove it out of the lot and stashed it around the corner. The robbers apparently panicked when they realized what had happened, and they fled on foot to a nearby field where they were eventually apprehended by the police. And another day. Some young people at a traditional marriage rally held up some handwritten signs. Someone took some photos and posted those photos online. George Takei, actor from such shows as Star Trek, where he played Sulu, and Heroes, where he played the character Hero's father, responded to those written signs with his own replies. So you should check out uh, George Takei's replies. He replied to several of these signs. And my favorite is here. A young woman held up a written sign that says, Because we as young people need parents for so many things, and men slash women make the people they produce, I guess I can say it like that. And if you put all the guys on one island, they won't last long, because you need one woman and one man. So that was a young woman's sign at the rally. And George Takei's sign in his reply, Please tell me where this island of men is. Thanks. So go on and check out uh, George Takei and his, he tweeted this a while back, his replies to the handwritten signs that were posted online from this particular rally. Sometimes stuff happens. Sometimes stuff happens and stuff happened in Spain where Spain just spent $680 million on a new submarine. 
The one problem with this, after spending $680 million, the submarine was built too heavy to float. One of Spain's largest defense splurges may also be one of its most embarrassing. After spending two-thirds of a $3 billion budget to build four of the world's most advanced submarines, the project's engineers have run into a problem. The submarines are so heavy that they would sink to the bottom of the oceans. Miscalculations by engineers at Navantia, the construction company contracted to build the S-80 submarine fleet, have produced submarines that are each almost 100 tons too heavy. The excess weight sounds pretty paltry compared to the 2,000 plus tons that each submarine weighs, but it is more than enough to send the submarines straight to the ocean floor. Given the mistake, Spain is going to have to choose between two costly fixes, slimming the submarines down or elongating them to compensate for the extra fat. All signs point to the latter, which will be anything but a breeze. Adding length will still require redesigning the entire vessel. Spain's defense ministry, the government arm responsible for overseeing the project, has yet to say how much the setback will cost in both time and money, but Navantia has already estimated that its mistake will set the project back at least one or more likely two years. In Spanish-language newspaper, El Economista reported that each additional meter added to the sub will cost roughly $9 million. So remember, measure twice, cut once. This story from Ashley Lutz at businessinsider.com. A Florida student found that the ice at fast food restaurants is actually dirtier than the toilet water at the same establishment. The student, 12-year-old Jasmine Roberts, hypothesized that ice at fast food joints was probably dirtier than the toilets, so she went to five fast food restaurants and collected samples. She ordered cups of ice and put them in sterile beakers. She also went into the bathrooms, flushed the toilet once, and collected a sample. The findings were pretty disturbing. Quote, I found that 70% of the time, the ice from the fast food restaurants contained more bacteria than the fast food restaurant's toilet water. One more. But let's kind of get all that fun, quirky stuff out of there. In a story titled Man Bites Shark, Joe Chernov from jchernov.com outlined his learning of the the facts around shark killing and the numbers and creating how, how he took that information and created a infographic to visually represent the enormity of the slaughter of sharks. And here's what Joe wrote. I recently read a Huffington Post article that cited research estimating that 100 million sharks are killed annually. Most of the slaughter is a result of finning, a cruel and wasteful practice in which hunters slice off the living shark's fins, causing the lame fish to drown or be eaten by other predators. The fins are sold for shark fin soup. The article stuck with me. I thought about it for days. It occurred to me that it's nearly impossible to appreciate a number as large as 100 million without context. It somehow had to be made visual if people were going to wrap their heads around the enormity of the figure. The great irony is that the shark is arguably the most feared animal on the planet. Yet, whereas they killed 12 people last year, a peak year, we kill that many every four seconds. And then there's an a image of the infographic here, which is pretty amazing. It says shark attack at the top. It says sharks killed this many people per year and has silhouettes of 12 people. And then goes on to say people kill this many sharks per hour and has the silhouettes 
of an enormous number of sharks. I don't know if I even have the number here, but this infographic just kind of goes on and on and on, you know, hundreds of rows of, of probably 20 sharks, shark silhouettes per row. And then finally you get down to the bottom where the number is 11,417 sharks killed per hour versus 12 humans killed by sharks in the entire year last year. Let's get deeper into the conversation. A story in the New York Times by Charlie Savage and Peter Baker outlined Obama's recent shift in drone strikes and his update to rules governing those drone strikes, um, which is a better direction than where we were at, but isn't, in my opinion, anywhere near what a a reasonable democratic nation should be supporting. Here's a couple of pieces that reinforce my feeling about drone strikes. The administration on Wednesday formally acknowledged for the first time that it had killed four American citizens in drone strikes outside the battlefields of Afghanistan and Iraq, arguing that its actions were justified by the danger to the United States. The administration had deliberately killed Anwar al-Awlaki, a radical Muslim cleric who died in a drone strike in September 2011 in Yemen. Mr. Holder also wrote that the United States forces had killed three other Americans who were, quote, not specifically targeted. This is, drone strikes alone are problematic. I don't I, I don't support them in almost any case. The only the the uh, they're essentially they're used as tools of assassination. Uh, the only justifiable drone strike in my opinion is to stop someone who is in the act of attacking US forces, attacking someone else. So to have a strike on people who are not in the act of carrying out an attack. I think is unconscionable. Aside from that bottom line fact for me, um, something that's I think even more troubling is of the four American citizens who were killed by U.S. drone strikes in the Middle East, only one of them was a target of those drone strikes, which means three out of four of those American citizens were not targeted, happened to be in a place where there was somebody that we wanted to kill. And I think that collateral damage, uh, as the military likes to call it, is unacceptable, absolutely unacceptable. We shouldn't be dropping bombs and firing missiles when the outcomes are unknown. And if we weren't specifically targeting these people, but yet we killed them anyway, then something is wrong, deeply wrong, in that system. Attorney General Holder confirmed that the government's role in the deaths of Samir Khan, who was killed in the same strike, and Mr. Awlaki's son, Abdul Rahman Al Awlaki, who died in another strike. Um, so those two were killed. One was related but killed in a separate incident, and one was killed in the same strike that killed the intended target of one of the strikes. And the fourth American was named Jude Keenan Mohammed, um, but there were no further details given about when and where he was killed by a drone strike. But it's this kind of stuff that drives me freaking crazy. It is that kind of stuff that drives me freaking crazy. And then this kind of stuff also drives me freaking crazy. We all remember the Boston Marathon and the Boston Marathon bombers and the FBI is hot on the trail of anyone related to them and anyone else who may have either had knowledge or had some involvement in those acts. Uh, channel WCVB, which is a Boston news channel, posted this story. 
A man being questioned in connection with the Boston Marathon bombings was shot and killed in Florida on Tuesday by an FBI agent from Boston when the agent, quote, began to feel threatened, ABC News confirmed. Kusin Taramov said he and Ibrahim Todashev were being questioned as part of the bombings by the FBI official and another law enforcement officer in Orlando. Taramov said they were interviewed nearly three hours, and at some point, quote, something went wrong, and Todashev was killed. There was some, this is another quote, there was some sort of aggressive movement that led the FBI agent to believe he was under threat, and he opened fire, the law enforcement official told ABC News. The F, and this is uh, Taramov. Um, the FBI took me and my friend, the suspect that got killed, they were talking to us both of us, right? And then they said they need him for a little more, for a couple more hours, and I left. And they told me they're going to bring him back. They never brought him back. The FBI confirmed that a person was shot and killed, but would not disclose details about the investigation. So it wasn't, I, I don't have any more details about this incident than are in this particular story. I don't know the nature of the threat felt by the FBI officer when this individual was being questioned by the officer. Um, so I can't comment on a specific instance, um, but it does bring to mind the instance where the Boston bombing suspect was hiding in the boat in the backyard. And I do remember hearing the gunshots that the police fired towards and into that boat. And at the time, it was, it was unknown what the threat was. And it was later found out that that suspect did not have a gun and that every one of those gunshots that was fired and the, the, the recording I heard probably was, was 15 to 20, and I wouldn't be surprised if it was many more. Um, every one of those gunshots was fired by law enforcement. And it also brings to mind a previous event when they were when the law enforcement out in California were searching for Mr. Dornan, who had murdered at least three people, as I recall, and was on the run, and where police officers in a neighborhood there felt threatened by the movements of a tr pickup truck and fired 30-plus shots into that truck which was operated by um, a middle-aged and elderly woman who were delivering newspapers in the neighborhood. So I am always suspect about whether shootings are justified or not justified. I have no comment on whether this particular shooting of this um, person of interest who was just being interrogated um, by the FBI and the police was justified or not. I don't have the details of the situation. All right, let's go back to that quote that I opened up this episode with. Who said that? And here is that quote in a couple more pieces of the same quote. While the income of a minority is increasing exponentially, that of the majority is crumbling. This imbalance results from ideologies which uphold the absolute autonomy of markets and financial speculation and thus deny the right of control to states, which are themselves charged with providing for the common good. And speaking of financial markets, he said a new invisible and at times virtual tyranny is established, one which unilaterally and irredeemably imposes its own laws and rules. <clears throat> I posted those quotes on my website at unrelatedthings.net with the title Who Said That? And I gave four options. Option number one is Senator Bernie Sanders, senator from Vermont, independent in the U.S. Senate, and avowed socialist, 
and he was not the person who made these particular quotes, but I would expect he would agree with them. The second option I put on the website was Fidel Castro, and I could imagine Fidel Castro uh, sharing these sentiments as well, but it was not Fidel Castro either. The I'll skip the third option because the third option posted was the correct choice. And the fourth option I posted was Barack Obama. And I think this is well beyond the language that Barack Obama would generally use in describing the imbalance between rich and poor. I think he would share the sentiment, but I think he would not use this language in his position now to express that sentiment. So who said this? This was said by the Pope. Pope Francis, formerly Cardinal Jorge Berjolio of Buenos Aires, said his pontificate would side with the poor on social and economic issues. Quote, the Pope loves everyone, rich and poor alike, but the Pope has the duty in Christ's name to remind the rich to help the poor, to respect them, to promote them. So those were the words and the sentiments of the current Pope. I don't ever recall a Pope uh, in in my history um, that I have thought was on the right track and thought was espousing the right views. on almost any subject, uh, there certainly were some that shared, probably have shared some of this type of attitude in the past, but was overclouded by many of their other thoughts and ideas and the things that they were promoting. So this, in my opinion, by far in my lifetime, best Pope ever. And I posted that on my website. And then it got even better. A story by The Guardian UK, which was uh, reprinted from Reuters, had this to say. Atheists should be seen as good people if they do good, Pope Francis has said in his latest urging that people of all religions and none work together. The leader of the world's 1.2 billion Roman Catholics made his comments in the homily of his morning mass at his residence, a daily event at which he speaks without prepared comments. He told the story of a Catholic who asked a priest if even atheists had been redeemed by Jesus. Even them, everyone, the Pope answered, according to Vatican Radio, we all have the duty to do good, he said. Just do good and we'll find a meeting point, the Pope said in a hypothetical reply to the hypothetical comment, but I don't believe I'm an atheist. So absolutely reinforce my opinion. Best Pope ever. Are you kidding me? I am not kidding you. Absolutely. Best Pope ever ever. And this point from Senator Sanders, uh, something that was tweeted from his office, uh, a little infographic. All of the largest banks in America have agreed to settle multiple cases of fraudulent activity related to the financial crisis, but none of their executives have gone to jail for their illegal behavior. In contrast, during the savings and loan scandal of the 1980s, more than 800 bank officials went to jail. And a little piece, another piece on Elizabeth Warren, the Massachusetts senator, by Robert Shear, um, printed on alternet.org. And I'll just read the opening couple of paragraphs of Robert Shear's story. Elizabeth Warren does great email. One payoff of my pittance of a contribution to her grassroots funded campaign is that I am regularly alerted by the new Massachusetts Senator to the favoritism 
of our Congress towards Wall Street. That's how I was reminded this week that Congress is about to let the interest rate charged for new student loans to double to 6.8% at a time when the too-big-to-fail banks that caused the Great Recession continue to be bailed out at the rate of 0.75%. Yes, the banks pay less than 1% for money that we, the taxpayers, lend them. I know that such statistics are thought to be boring, but as Warren explained, the rate that students will have to pay is nine times higher than the rate at which the government loans money to the big banks. The student loan interest rate that had been temporarily cut in half back in 2007 was once again set to double. But instead of pushing for the status quo, as Congress did last year, Warren has upped the ante with legislation that would cut the student loan rate way down to the near zero that the big banks enjoy. As Warren put it in her characteristically no-bull style, quote, the federal government is profiting off loans to our young people while giving a far better deal to the same Wall Street banks that crashed our economy and destroyed millions of jobs. That's why I've introduced the Bank on Students Loan Fairness Act as my first bill in the Senate to allow students to borrow money at the same rate as the biggest banks. Why should the big banks get a nearly free ride while people trying to get an education pay nine times more? It isn't right. The Transportation Safety Administration hit a new record on Friday when they found 65 firearms in carry-on bags, the most ever found in a single week. The previous record of 50 came just a few weeks before, and authorities say that 54 of this week's guns were loaded. Boggles my mind that the TSA can find 65 firearms in carry-on bags in one week. Who are these travelers that don't understand what these rules are and, and why they're there? It's, it's just amazing to me that the number of people who will attempt to carry a firearm, and in most cases a loaded firearm, onto an airplane is so high. And one last thing in the deep end of the news. The next time you hear there's a scientific debate about climate change, remember this. When a recent Pew Research Center survey asked, do scientists agree that the Earth is getting warmer from climate change because of human activity, 43% of Americans said no. So people don't think that the scientists agree. But an analysis of Almost 12,000 peer-reviewed research papers found that of 4,000 that stated positions, 97% said that climate change is caused by human activity. The study did reveal that two-thirds of the papers had no position on the question, but it still does not imply that there is a debate only 1.1% of the papers that were reviewed either rejected the concept of man-made warming or said the cause was uncertain. So just a fraction over 1% of the published papers of the 12,000 peer-reviewed research papers said that it is uncertain or that it is not caused by humans. So there should not be so much confusion about whether there is a big debate. The big debate is not happening in the science. Uh, the, the only big debate is happening in the media. Because TV is so good. TV is so good, and a shift is happening in TV. Cord cutting is real, and a story by Ted Critsonis in Digital Trends has this to say about some recent numbers. Research analysts say that despite adding 195,000 new subscribers in the U.S. in the first quarter of this year, major multi-channel video providers 
still suffered a net loss over a four-quarter period, indicating that cord cutting has had an impact. A survey of 13 of the largest multi-channel video providers across the country, who make up 94% of the market, showed a net loss of 80,000 subscribers over the past 12 months, a huge swing compared to the 380,000 they gained in the year prior. Quote, first time ever annual industry-wide losses reflect a combination of a saturated market, an increased focus from providers on acquiring higher value subscribers, and some customers opting for a lower cost mixture of over-the-air TV, Netflix, and other viewing options. The top nine cable companies have over 51 million subscribers, but lost 264,000 in the first quarter. It hasn't been a good year for the cable companies. Time Warner lost 553,000 customers, Comcast lost 359,000, and Charter lost 217,000. So the losses are happening for various reasons. One of the reasons is the cost of cable service and the current languishing economy. Uh, but one of those reasons is that people are finding options that they prefer outside of the major cable subscriptions. Because TV is so good. On to my Eureka Minute. Niall Matter played Zane Donovan in 49 episodes of Eureka, debuting in episode number 8 of season 2, titled E equals MC ellipsis question mark. Fun when they throw in those non-verbal non uh, elements in the title. Um, that that episode was written by Bruce Miller and was directed by Tim Matheson. Niall has been in numerous TV series and movies, including Beyond Loch Ness, which was a TV movie that aired in Canada, and the major motion picture Watchmen, in which he played Mothman. On a side note, Watchmen also starred Eureka actor Matt Frewer playing Moloch. Niall's current series is Primeval New World, which has already aired in Canada and is set to debut on Sci-Fi in the U.S. on June 8th. Sci-Fi has picked up several recent series this way. Lost Girl was a Canadian program, as is Continuum. Um, and Merlin, I don't know exactly what nation Merlin came out of. I think it may have come out of the U.K. Um, but Sci-Fi is the originating network in the U.S. for those series, and now will be for Primeval New World. Uh, Primeval New World, though it is created in Canada, it is a spinoff of a hit U.K. television series called Primeval. Um, and Primeval New World follows a specialized team of animal experts and scientists that investigate the appearance of temporal anomalies and battle both prehistoric and futuristic creatures. It's better than it sounds. Uh, I, I've watched the entire UK series of Primeval, and what is discovered are these, these temporal anomalies are gateways to different time periods, and time periods where the dinosaurs roamed. And so it these gateways allow creatures, human beings, and otherwise, to pass between the time periods. It makes for some excitement when the dinosaurs come into the present time and have to be dealt with. In addition to creatures from the past, it also, these temporal anomalies link to the future, where there are other creatures and other predators that are active that pass through into the present day as well. So that uh, Primeval New World starring Niall Matter will debut on Sci-Fi in the U.S. on June 8th. This may be um, the first series since Eureka was taken off the air. 
that I will make a point to watch on a regular basis. In one episode, an episode titled Breakthrough, I don't know which number episode that is, um, Colin Ferguson is actually going to be in Primeval New World playing a character named Howard Cannon. It's a tech thing. So last week, Microsoft unveiled the Xbox One, and Julie Clover from Mac Rumors had this to say about it. Microsoft today released details on its next-generation console at an event hosted at its Redmond campus in Washington. Called the Xbox One, the new console is designed to be the ultimate all-in-one home entertainment system, with a heavy focus on both gaming and interactive television watching. The Xbox One recognizes individual users and presents a customized home screen filled with content like TV and movies, games, and music, along with a new trending section that displays friend activity and a live TV system. Xbox One utilizes voice commands, motion control via the Kinect, and a new feature called Instant Switching to allow Xbox users to switch from gaming to TV to other types of entertainment with quick commands that work as fast as swapping channels on the TV. And I add, and it plays games too. And I know that Xbox has gone well beyond its initial debut as a gaming device, and many, many people get all different types of entertainment um, and programming through their Xbox. I don't have one and have never used one, but from the things I hear about it, it is a pretty good device for getting that content, getting those other other types of content like TV programming and movies. But what did Wall Street think about uh, Microsoft unveiling the Xbox? TechCrunch uh, reporter Josh Constantine, John Constantine. Uh, had this to write about the Wall Street response. Wall Street apparently wanted something more revolutionary out of the Xbox One that launched today as Microsoft stock is down 0.66%. In turn, investors pushed Sony shares up 9% as they expect the new PlayStation 4 to give the Xbox One a solid fight for console gaming dominance. And he went on to write about some of the functions and the features. So a, a 0.66, you know, contraction of the Microsoft stock is not a very big drop. A lot of times the rumor will inflate the stock and then actually on the news, stock will contract a little bit. But the, the daily numbers for Microsoft during the Xbox launch were very flat actually took a little dip in the afternoon, probably about the time that the launch event had concluded. But at the beginning of that launch event, as, as information started to roll out, the Sony stock took a big spike and, went, and was up for the day 9.25%. So clearly investors did not feel that the Xbox One is a far superior device to the Sony device and actually said, well, if this is what Microsoft has to offer, I better invest a little bit more in Sony. On to Apple News. Apple stores continue to outpace the rest of the retail industry in sales per customer, according to CNET.com. The company took in record revenue per visitor of $57.60 during the first quarter. The number of visitors rose by 7% from the prior year's first quarter. As such, the average revenue per Apple store reached $13 million for the quarter, the highest number ever for a non-holiday quarter. The average number of visitors per store hit 250,000 per quarter, which means a million per store per year, and was a healthy leap from the 170,000 per store per quarter for the 12 months prior. 
Looking at sales per square foot in the U.S., Apple did twice as well as the second place company, Tiffany, and three times as well as third place, Lululemon. Some rumors on the Apple front and iOS 7. This from MacRumors.com. Apple has been making efforts to offer deep social network integration in its mobile operating system, first offering Twitter integration in iOS 5 and then Facebook integration in iOS 6. According to 9to5Mac, Apple will expand its social network integration even further with iOS 7, including support for both photo sharing site Flickr and video sharing site Vimeo. As with Facebook and Twitter integration, Vimeo and Flickr integration will allow users to be able to sign in to the social networks in the settings menu. Those one-time sign-in credentials will be usable across iOS, providing comprehensive sharing options and easy integration with other downloaded apps. Quote, with Flickr integration, iPhone, iPad, and iPod Touch customers will have the ability to share photos stored and or taken on their devices to Flickr with a single tap from the system-wide share menu. Flickr has been integrated into the, I, into the paid iPhoto iOS App Store app and OS X Mountain Lion since 2012, but iOS 7 will represent the first time in which the photo sharing service has been integrated deeply into the entire iOS operating system. While Apple continues to allow direct video uploads to YouTube from its camera app, Vimeo integration will give iOS 7 users an additional option for video uploads. As with Yahoo, Apple has an existing relationship with video, with Vimeo, having offered integration with the service in OS 10 Mountain Lion. As noted by 9to5Mac's unnamed source, though Flickr and Vimeo integration is currently in the works, as with any beta software, there is a risk that it could be removed before the public release of iOS 7. And iOS 7 should get its debut and introduction coming up pretty soon at WWDC, where we should see also the next version of OS 10 uh, be displayed, and release will likely be later, end of summer, or into the fall. So a story on Fortune, um, for a number of reasons, including all those questions about future products that not even Steve Jobs would have touched, Apple CEO Tim Cook didn't break much news Tuesday night at all things D. So Tim Cook was a featured interview at the all things D conference. He had interviewed there last year as well. But Cook did provide a new data point about the Apple TV during his interview. He said the company has sold more than 13 million since the first version shipped in 2007. About half of those sold in the last year. So how does that stack up against the competition? If you exclude the advanced video game consoles like Xbox and PlayStation, which have some of the same media functions, but sell in the tens of millions of units. Apple stacks up like this against the competition for the set-top box. Apple TV sales, more than 13 million. Roku sales, really strong competitor, more than 5 million units. And BoxyBox, about 200,000 units before it got discontinued last summer. So in that piece of the market with those competitors, Apple has 71% of the set-top box units out there in, in the public, or units sold. And I use my Apple TV. I'm using my Apple TV right now uh, as I do this podcast. It is a great device for putting your content of your computer or of your iOS device up on your TV screen. It's great for playing, playing TV and video um, with its Netflix and Hulu apps and coming soon, as mentioned previously, the CW Network will have an app on the Apple TV. I think the big challenge of the Apple TV and the thing that would make it explode would be to allow third-party apps, maybe not completely uncontrolled, or and I shouldn't say uncontrolled because Apple has significant control over everything that goes into the App Store, but maybe with less of a 
free for all than the App Store and some more control over what content lands on it. But it would be absolutely amazing to see a, a big variety of third-party apps um, on the Apple TV. It would change the nature of the platform from something that transitions media from another source to the TV to something that could actually incorporate functions, incorporate games, incorporate all kinds of different functions similar to the other devices that you may have. And one final Apple story before we head out of the Apple news. Apple agrees to pay $53 million in a class action lawsuit. A class action lawsuit over the sensitivity of liquid damage sensors in iPods and iPhones has come to a settlement that would cost Apple $53 million. In court documents filed in San Francisco, consumers could be eligible for up to $300 depending on the model of iPod or iPhone they owned. The class action lawsuit claimed that the liquid submersion indicators used in different Apple products over the years are faulty and could be triggered during normal use even when not submerged in water. Everyone knows if your device stops working and an Apple employee sees the indicator shows water contact, then you likely will not get your device repaired or replaced. The settlement applies to any customer whose warranty claims for iPhone were denied before December 31, 2009, and for iPod touch denials before June 2010. And starting in 2011, Apple relaxed its rigidity over those sensors, noting that there were definitely some issues in which the sensor had changed when there was really no water contact. I don't even know where to start. One of the biggest yeah. deals ever in the history of ever. And those random things were because I don't have a good bumper for my next segment on the web. I need to get a, make, make myself a web bumper. So a couple stories that are web related, even though a lot of those previous stories have some connections to the web. Uh, Flickr was recently updated. Marissa Meyer of Yahoo announced a big update to Flickr. Starting right now, she said, Flickr users get one terabyte of storage for free, enough for a lifetime of photos. According to Yahoo's estimate, that is enough for 500,000 full-resolution photos. So enormous amounts of storage. So why don't they call it unlimited? Hmm. Well, unlimited, there are other, other services that have unlimited storage. And although this is limited storage, and you can spend, I think it's something like $500 for an extra terabyte, although I would highly recommend get yourself another free terabyte, by opening a second account. Um, the terabyte of storage limitation is really not a realistic limitation for most people. It is essentially unlimited, but by rolling it out as one terabyte of storage and 500,000 full resolution images, you get a lot more play. You get a lot more media attention. You get a lot more stories and a lot more talk. So it's a really, really great uh, move in advancing the Flickr brand, which is one of Yahoo's strongest um, businesses. Uh, let's see. What else did she say? She just added, Flickr users will never have to worry about running out of space. In addition to updating the storage capacity of Flickr to one terabyte per account. There will be ads in those uh, streams of images and you can pay to remove those ads. So that is one, two ways that they are monetizing. The Flickr service is, and I, I don't, I believe the ads were there previously for free accounts as well, um, but by including ads or by having people pay for the privilege to not have those ads in their stream. Some more Yahoo news, some, some big news that happened a week and a half ago or so. Yahoo bought Tumblr for something like a billion dollars. Um, so Yahoo's all about the big numbers recently. 
But what happened when Yahoo bought Tumblr? Well, as with a lot of popular services, when someone else comes in and takes over, a portion of those people using that service either don't want new terms to come in or afraid of what might happen and decide to look elsewhere for service. So in what can only be called an exodus, WordPress co-founder Matt Mullenweg posted on his blog that on a recent Sunday night, over 72,000 new blog posts were imported in a single hour. This is a massive spike considering that WordPress usually just sees 400 to 600 imported posts on most Sundays. It's a tiny percentage of Tumblr's 51 billion posts, but it's an important consideration that Tumblr and now Yahoo cannot ignore. So definitely there are some people jumping ship. Yahoo is officially buying Tumblr for a lot of cash, 1.1 billion to be precise. This move makes a few people very happy and very rich, but Tumblr's content creators, you and me, not me right now, but something I might explore in the future, are the primary reason Yahoo is buying the site. Unfortunately, that content engine isn't very happy. A WordPress, WordPress, which is a competitor, will likely have another banner day as even more Tumblr users look for alternative platforms to host their saucy brony slash fic. And before I go on to read the rest of this, let me tell you that I am reading this. So this is not all my own words. This is a story from TechCrunch by Matt Burns. So you can go to TechCrunch and read the full story, including the bits that I've reported here. Tumblr is currently an unfettered corner of the internet. Nearly anything goes. And with that, users have enjoyed this freedom to create a vast variety of blogs and sites. Anything from questionable pornography to vegan cooking blogs are hosted on Tumblr. While Yahoo promises to keep Tumblr independent, it is unclear whether this includes maintaining Tumblr's loose posting guidelines. So that is what's making, making some of the Tumblr users, and it is a small percentage, though the numbers are large because of the number of people who use that platform, um, look for alternatives to Tumblr as Yahoo takes control, though they maintain that that will still be an independently operated part of the Yahoo. I'm not sure if we can call it an empire yet, but it definitely is a rebounding brand. And let's see, one more web item. Um, this is a really fun site. It is um, found at geoguessr.com. G-E-O-G-U-E-S-S-R.com. I learned of this site from a Twitter. A Twitter thing. I learned of this site from a tweet from Brian Brushwood of NSFW and Framerate and weird things and scam school and other other entities um it's a really fun site it's geoguesser.com what you do is you go to geoguesser.com and you are shown a 360 degree image shot from a google street cam somewhere in the world and your job is to guess where in the world that is and you make your guess on a map and it reveals the actual location and your distance from that actual location and scores you some points depending on how close or how far you are from that spot. And it gives you about five more images to guess where they're located. Some of the images are rather easy. Not very easy, but rather easy. Easy to get into the right country um, sometimes because you see signs and you see words and you see there was a image that I saw of a bridge being constructed somewhere in a salt marsh type of an area. And it did not have a lot of clues in the image. But as I scrolled around, there was a water tank and the water tank 
Um, it was a mobile water tank, so it was parked on the side of the road. But it did have the giant clue to New Brunswick on the side. So I dropped my pin in New Brunswick. Of course, almost the furthest point in New Brunswick from where the actual photo was taken. But at least I landed in the right country. Some images are extraordinarily difficult. They're, they're mountain, mountain ranges. And they're all from the road, but they are... A lot of them have very, very few clues as to where you might be. So if you want to test your geography, it's a really fun way to test out your knowledge of geography and landscapes around the world. Go to geoguesser.com. And that is going to wrap up this episode of Unrelated Things. Thank you so much for listening to episode number eight of Unrelated Things. I hope you enjoyed it enough to come back again. If you have any feedback or suggestions, you can let me know at unrelatedthings at gmail.com. You can find out more about Unrelated Things at unrelatedthings.net and follow Unrelated Things on Twitter or on Facebook. Thanks for listening.